1: join us go to gigantic.is that's gigantic.is and save your seat for our january cohort your potential is gigantic and we're here to help you reach it go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today
2: part of the reason that we got in this pickle with advertising being the model is because coders love stuff that scales they, they love the idea of, I'm going to solve this problem once for me, for my friend, and then for everyone else on the planet, right? You know, I do it once, and then everyone can use it. And so anything that doesn't scale and, and doesn't grow massively huge seems kind of sad to them, basically, right? You know, like they they love that. They love that charge. One, one, one Instagram engineer talked about how uh, I, I met him a couple of days after they launched Stories, and he was, you know, he was... You know, had no sleep for 72 hours or whatever. He was sort of blearily walking around on the subway um, in San Francisco and he could see everyone using it. And it was just this amazing, it's that amazing feeling of this, this creation is suddenly being used everywhere. So, because they love So today you. we're breaking down a conversation we recently had with Clive
1: Thompson the author of Coders The Making of a New Tribe and Remaking of the World. We're talking to Clive today about some of the issues that we as a society face because of software that has scaled beyond the sizes that we were really ready for.
0: That sounds pretty heavy.
1: Yeah, in in a way it is. He talked about all the systems that have been built around us now, the internet, sensors, automated vehicles. How do those
0: come to be and who's behind their development. Fascinating. Well, so I'm guessing we're going to get into things like the Facebooks, Googles, and Ubers of the World? Yeah, I I would say so, but I, I think you'll just have to wait and see. Welcome
1: to RocketShip.fm.
0: RocketShip FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belcito.
1: Clive is no stranger to technology. He's 50 now, and he has been around since the early days of personal computing.
2: That's right. I'm uh, I'm 50 years old, so I'm part of that generation of teenagers who got their hands on the first ever personal computers back in the 80s, right? So it was those, like, the Commodore 64s and the VIC-20s, the ones that, you, you know, you plugged into a TV and you started programming BASIC. So I did that, and I loved it. And I could sort of tell back then... Um, wow, these, these, these devices are going to change the world. Um, and I also had enough of the experience of the weird kind of mesmerizing pleasure of computer programming that even though I never went on to do it for a living, I sort of, I kind of got, you know, coders. When I would talk to them and they would explain, you know, why, you know, why they find this such a thrilling uh, and powerful thing to do with their lives, I immediately understood it.
0: So he went out to interview people who are coders from really all walks of life to try to find a thread that connected them all together.
2: What I really did was I went right to the people themselves. Um, I decided I want this book to be filled with the stories uh, and the voices of coders from all walks of life and from all parts of the ladder, right from the from the very top, from the creators of Instagram and the creators of the of the Facebook newsfeed, you know, and the creators of Google's, like, top AI that does all the visual recognition. I want those, those, you know, real power brokers all the way down to people who are just kind of getting into it now, like some people that decided to retrain in middle age and, like, do this. And now they're working for, like, you know, some local bank or something like that. You know, I, I, I wanted it to be filled with the voices of people so they could say in their own words, you know... Here is what, here is what doing this all day long, you know, sort of does to the way you look at the world, and, and here is why we're building the things we're building. You know, when, when, when you when you get a new app and it and it's encouraging you to sort of do X, Y, or Z you want to know why it's doing that. And that's because of the the reasons that the coders brought to it. So it's it's a book of voices. So this is great and all, uh,
1: but I wanted to get to the heart of why coders were such a focus. Why did coders matter at all? And of course, we have one of the most famous and powerful coders of our day, Mark Zuckerberg, being dragged into the Senate multiple times last year for questioning.
3: We face a number of important issues around privacy, safety, and democracy and you will rightfully have some hard questions for me to answer. Before I talk about the steps we're taking to address them, I want to talk about how we got here. Facebook is an idealistic and optimistic company. For most of our existence, we focused on all of the good that connecting people can do. And as Facebook has grown, people everywhere have gotten a powerful new tool for staying connected to the people they love. Ms. Sandberg suggested on the NBC Today show that Facebook users who do not want their personal information used for advertising might have to pay for that protection, pay for it. Are you actually uh, considering having Facebook users pay for you not to use that Yes, Senator, although to be clear, we don't offer an option today for people to pay to not show ads. We think offering an ad-supported service is the most aligned with our mission of trying to help connect everyone in the world. Because we want to offer a free service that everyone can afford. Okay. That's the only way that we can reach billions is, of people. What are the protections that are going to be put on the books for their families, but especially for their children?
2: Would you support a privacy bill of rights for kids where opt-in is the standard? Yes or
3: no? Senator, I think that that's an important principle. And I appreciate I think, that. And I think we should— Do we need a law to protect those children? That's my question to you. Do you believe we need a law to do so? yes or no Senator I'm not sure if we need a law but I think that this is certainly a thing that that, discur- that, that deserves a lot of discussion I, and I, I, I
2: again I couldn't disagree with you more Other, we're leaving these children to the most rapacious commercial predators in the country who will exploit these children unless we absolutely have a law on the books please. and and Senator, I think it is absolutely please give a short
3: please give a short answer. Senator, I look forward to having my team follow up to flesh out the details of it. I don't think this S- is a Senator difficult Flake. issue Flake. to get a, gre- a correct answer
4: to. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Now, we're not here to pass judgment on Zuckerberg. We're not? I mean,
1: all right. I, I'm just saying the Senate hearing was... Okay, we're, we're here to talk about Clive... Right, okay, okay. So we all know the story of Facebook now. We know their business model, the endless data points collected, the personality scoring, the social graph analysis. Did they prove that microphone thing yet? I don't think they've
0: proven it, but I don't know.
1: (laughs) Okay. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices, construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country, or invent a talking pillow. AT&T business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And, backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. Anyway, we know for better or worse what has made Facebook such a powerful and pervasive entity in our society. And this was one of the personality types that Clive was interested in really learning more about.
2: So one of the problems you have is that when, you, when, when you're when you a coder, and you're like, I want to make this, I want to sort of create new way to do this. I want to create new optimized way to, ways to do this. When you succeed, things often scale really quickly. You know, like you know, today, Facebook's being used by 10 people and tomorrow it's used by a hundred and then a million and then a billion and it grows really, really quickly. And you know, once something's going really big, software software can go really, really big, really quickly. You have the problem of, well, how do you control what's happening on it? How would you filter what's happening in someone's newsfeed so that it shows not every post because you can't show them 50,000 posts a day. You only want to show them like, you know, a hundred. Um, how do you filter that right you have to start using algorithms you have to start using software and writing little subroutines to say pick this stuff pick that stuff and so it starts taking humans out of the loop over and over again right software whenever it scales whenever it gets big takes humans out of the loop and this is this is you know just sort of a built-in problem of things becoming big but what that means you know is that you have to start making kind of crude decisions with software so you know the facebook algorithm more or less same thing probably in instagram and same thing in reddit and same thing in any place that has a recommendation system youtube certainly Uh, it tends to you know just select for stuff that's you know hey what's already popular you know let's show more of that and what's already popular tends to be stuff that's very emotionally engaging it makes you angry it makes you laugh it makes you um you know pissed off so there's you know anytime you sort of Take people out of the loop, and this is what this software that gets really big does. You inject algorithmic logic that you know almost always tends to sort of go after stuff that's really you know emotionally intense, you know, very quote unquote engaging, as they say. And so that's that's kind of a, a secondary problem we see. If you if you look at the world online, you feel like how come everyone's sort of yelling at each other all the time. Well, that's because yelling is very engaging, right? And so these algorithms, which are having to deal with scale and massive size, uh, always tend to converge on, you know, wow, let's let's reward the stuff
0: that's most histrionic. And boy, do they ever. It's this same trend towards rewarding engagement that's really given Facebook and Twitter a bad name lately. they become known as places where women do not feel safe to speak without being attacked and where seedy subcultures of hate and violence are free to fester and... On a lighter note, generally, places where people's negativity gets all the attention, encouraging more and more negativity. My friend has a story that he loves to tell about this. A a girl that he was
1: dating, she broke up with him, and he was distraught over it. So he bought some Instagram bots, and he started driving up the likes and engagements on all of her photos. That sounds like a pretty weird thing to do after a breakup, honestly. (laughs) It is, right? But then... he only started to like pictures of her and her cats and then started to leave comments like where are your cats on pictures where it was just her. Okay. Yeah. And then slowly over the course of a couple months, her feed became all cats.
0: That's sort of depressing.
1: Yeah. And, and, I didn't say it was a nice story, right? But it's the same psychological manipulation that's happening to us every day. We post something, we get likes, we get comments, right? We get that engagement. We want to post more of whatever it is, is getting us that, that dopamine. So we, we start to become that
0: online persona that people respond to. Yeah. And the algorithms, we don't admit it, but they're already pervasive in our lives. Yeah, they decide
1: whose posts people see. They decide who gets recommended. They can determine whether you're building your following or furthering your career or you're banished to social obscurity. So
0: who can solve this problem?
1: Well, uh, why don't we tackle that after a quick word from our sponsors?
0: So who can solve these bigger social impact issues we're seeing created by social media? I think when you have something as big as facebook or as
2: big as instagram or as big as twitter you have to have code you know work at that speed of light that computers can can work at to be able to like make these decisions but i do think that you know there are also things that we as a society could start thinking about doing you know some people have talked about well maybe part of the problem is uh some of these companies are too big you know like maybe it's just good old-fashioned antitrust stuff you got to break them into smaller pieces you know so that like they can't Control every part of the ecosystem of how we pay attention to each other. Or maybe, and this one is harder, but you'd have to reform the business models, right? Because, like, all these services, all these online services make money from advertising. So, you know, they make money when you're looking at them. And that's another reason why they will tend to promote very emotionally intense material, because that's mesmerizing. You know, that's car crash, that keeps you staring at this stuff. so if you, if you could imagine like a different way of, of financing something like Twitter or Facebook, like imagine almost like one of these freemium plans where like it's free for everyone for a certain amount. But if you want the really cool stuff, you know, like extra tools that let you communicate in richer ways or form more useful groups, maybe you charge people like, you know, a buck a month for that. And you get enough people going, hey, I want that, that um, you make just as much money as you do off ads, but you no longer need to, you know, do all the horrible things you do to sell ads. You no longer need to have clickbaity stuff rising to the top of your algorithm. You no longer need to do all the tracking and all the sort of invasive privacy uh, tracking that you see in social networks. So, So there are sort of solutions that are maybe a little outside the world of code, but they're also hard to do, right? It's hard to change the business model of an existing company. I mean, and there's no indication that Mark Zuckerberg or the folks on top of Twitter, or the folks on top of Instagram have any
0: desire to do so. It makes sense. The business model is what drives a lot of the decisions inside an organization. And why product people should learn as much about
1: business models, economics, and even ethics as they can. They are the ones that largely drive an organization's product decisions. And have the ability to push back. Yeah, and and this reminds me of a talk by Mike Montiero on Twitter of all social networks. Here, let me find a quick clip.
4: Turns out the answer is stupidly simple because the answer always comes down to one thing. The answer always comes down to money. And I get that Twitter needs users and it needs eyeballs to survive and the Trump economy is strong. It's worth $2 billion in value to Twitter. So say that. Tell us that. Tell us that you need him to survive. Tell us that this is a business decision, a horrible one, to be absolutely sure. But please, don't wrap yourself in principle. Tell us that you die without him. But know that in order to save yourselves, you're putting the rest of us at risk when he uses your platform to declare war on other countries. Twitter is a big, fucking, atomic bomb. We have presidents using it to start wars, unstable presidents. And the cuddled runts who run this platform have absolutely no idea what they're doing. They don't know how to run it. They're scared. And I can't blame them for being scared, because if I was running something this big, I'd be scared too. But they're also unprincipled. They're making money off of this shit. And that money is more important to them than the well-being of the people using the platform. And they lack an ethical core. And I can blame them for that.
0: He is definitely pulling no punches there. No, this is, this is the
1: true problem we're facing today. And product teams, product leaders, coders, designers, data scientists, these are all the people that can help to fix it. They are the people that can help move us in a better
2: direction. So what is the ray of light in all of this? There's a couple of rays of light. One is that uh, there is a whole, I think, cohort of software engineers who are uncomfortable with the big social and civic and economic impacts of the code that they're making right they've they sort of you know they got in this stuff 15 20 years ago because it just seemed like fun like hey you know we're gonna create all these cool services that let people do new things and it was fun you know for a decade and then the worm started turning and they started seeing that wow you know the stuff they were making was contributing to um to uh you know partisan ruptures or was messing around with you know the economies of people and making it harder for them to make a living or maybe it was contributing to ai that the military was using now to try and kill people in other countries and they didn't like that so there is a kind of interesting growing i think uh, um, sense of civic responsibility that you're seeing and it explains part of how you've seen these walkouts at microsoft and google when you had employees saying, you know, we don't want to do this military work or we want you to, you know, punish people who are serial harassers. You know, we don't want you to give them, you know, $90 million golden handshakes, which is what they did, which is what Google did uh, with Andy Rubin. Um, So that to me is interesting because if the coders themselves start to have an ethical and civic awakening, they have an enormous amount of power in Silicon Valley, right? Because this is... A talent-based business. All of these companies, all these big companies, are chasing after, you know, what they regard as a very, very finite group of coders that want to work for them. And you know, they're all dangling more money, dangling. So, if the coders themselves and the designers start saying, "Yeah, no, I, I'm leaving this firm if you don't behave in a way that, you know, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't behave in a more ethical way," um, that could have a very significant impact on the priorities of the companies themselves. That's one ray of light. I think the other one is just that the public themselves is increasingly um, aware and alive to the civic and commercial and and even emotional impact of code on them. Like it was all all very new 10 or 15 years ago. Now they are a little more jaded in a good way. And they're a little more vocal uh, about the way that they want the software ecosystem of their lives to work. Um, they're not, they're not being given very many options. You know, you sort of can't, there's no, like, there's no good alternative to things like, you know, Facebook or, or, you know, or PayPal or whatever, but you do see, you know, some, some interesting things emerge that people find ethically kind of cool and they get behind them like Patreon, you know, for example, or, you know, which, which, you know, emerge as a response to, for, uh, you know, by an artist, by a musician who was a coder said, you know, I want a better way to have people support the artists that they like uh, rather than have to go through these intermediaries, you know, like like, who take 30 or 40% of the money, you know, I want most of it to go to artists. And so, you know, that platform emerged and it's been a booming success, such a success. In fact, that Facebook is trying to copy it now, right. And, you know, they'll probably fail because they want 30 to 50% of the money <laughs> and they want all the money. Um, so, uh, so I, I think, you know, you, you see the other, the other, you know, sort of shoots green shoots of hope are people who are trying to create software alternatives to some of the very large entrenched players. And I think that, that could be an interesting, an interesting movement also.
0: Wow. Okay. So what I take away is what we build matters. What we build, it has an effect on the people that we're building it for. I hope that you today listening, I hope you're able to walk away from all of this and feel comfortable that what you're working on, what you're bringing to the world, it actually has a net positive impact for the greater good. Well said. And if you want to check out Clive Thompson's
1: book, Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and Remaking of the World, well, it's available everywhere. And by everywhere, we mean Amazon.com. Right, <laughs> right. We, we didn't get into how Amazon's packaging is contributing to global... Hey,
0: not today, Michael. I'm pretty sure we're out of time. All right, all right. Well, just don't let me forget it for the next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you right here next week.
1: Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com.
0: Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.